0: Welcome to episode number 62 of Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host, and in this episode, we have Alisa Grossman, who is a professor of entrepreneurship at the University of Southern California, one of the top entrepreneurship programs in the country and Elisa's use of experiential learning and serious educational games have helped her earn national awards as well as awards at the University of Southern California, and I have wanted to do an episode with Elisa for a while because I think it's interesting, the whole teaching entrepreneurship thing. Some people say you can't teach entrepreneurship, but we get into all of that and how she effectively does teach entrepreneurship to students and gives them a great experience to actually learn about entrepreneurship hands-on, and I really enjoyed this episode. As always, the show notes are at justcogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show over on iTunes, leaving a rating and review. Would very much so appreciate that. And this podcast actually can be found on all different platforms, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, as well as Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here's my episode with Elisa Grossman, a professor at University of Southern California. Elisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on and glad to get the schedule. And I was really interested in talking to you after I saw you won an award. So congrats on that for teaching. And I was curious, in the first place, how did you get started as a professor?
1: Oh, gee, you know, my parents told me long before I became a professor that they thought that was the career for me. And I assured them that they were absolutely wrong. My goal is to from college at the undergraduate level, was to never ever return for further education. I was convinced I was going to be the first female CEO of a Fortune 50 company, and then I started working in a Fortune. Uh, certainly one of the top companies, Procter and Gamble, and brand management. I think I was reasonably good at the job, but I also realized that a nine-to-five office job really wasn't something that made me feel happy. You know, sort of. I don't know what it is about office walls and doors and. Traditional hours that just aren't the right thing for me, and so I began to question what I wanted to do with my career. And right around when I was doing that, I volunteered for Junior Achievement. Yes, coming into an elementary school class talking about business, and the teacher of the like sixth grade class or whatever came up to me after the second or third session and said, "Why are you not doing this with your life?" And I thought about it and realized I was having a lot more fun with the kids. And then I looked at the salaries of your average elementary school educator and thought, "Well, maybe I can educate, but in a way that's." delivers me a little bit more income. (laughs) uh, So I decided to go to school. (laughs) Actually, I went back for an MBA before I went back for the PhD. So it took me a really long time to be convinced. My parents are educators. My grandfather even was an educator. So I come from a family of educators. And eventually I decided to try the PhD and and then I decided to teach and I realized I enjoyed teaching. And uh, ever since then, I've been in the right place. So that's how I became a professor. And the reason I stay is because of the creativity and freedom of the role as an instructor.
0: Yeah. And I definitely want to get into that a bit more. Why the MBA before the PhD?
1: I just, it wasn't in my mind that I would ever be an academic. It just wasn't sort of, <laughs> never, you know, my parents, as I said, said to me, people who knew me said they thought that it would be the right place for me. I was just convinced that I wanted to be a titan of industry for some reason. You know, I graduated from my undergraduate college. And from there, I went and decided I wanted to do a year overseas. And so while I was overseas, I saw a job advertisement for brand management, again, at PNG. and g um, And I applied for it, got it. I didn't yet have an MBA. I worked there for a few years and had some unique experiences, came back to the U.S., worked for another year. And really wanted something different. So at that point, I think it was the last cycle of applications for MBA programs. And I was living in California and I applied to the other school in town, uh, UCLA. <laughs> I, <laughs> the other I was school. Was, <laughs> yes. I was accepted. I had a great two years there. Coming out of that, still, though I'd begun to think about getting a PhD, I wanted to apply my learnings. And so I went to a different job and it was a a group marketing manager or group PR manager, I guess, At um, I did both at, um, or some aspect, I don't remember the title anymore, actually, at Sun Microsystems, which was then a very, very large tech company in the Bay Area. And while I was there, I finally decided to apply for PhD programs. Did that answer your question? I
0: don't know. If- yeah, definitely. And with the PhD, so MBA, then PhD, and then did you know it was going to be entrepreneurship? Like that was what you're going to teach entrepreneurship? Or did you know what that was even going to look like from a professor standpoint?
1: I had no idea it was going to be entrepreneurship. (laughs) (laughs) The students come to me and they say, we don't know what we want to do with our lives. And I think, well, good for you. That eventually, maybe you'll find the right thing for you rather than just choosing what seems most obvious. And sometimes I think that struggle lands you in a much better place later in life. I didn't actually start my PhD program until late in my 20s. When I finally started it, it was in organizational behavior which I love. I continue to find organizations very interesting. Uh, The psychology of human beings and organizations interesting. The dynamic interplay of organizations interesting. I just find all those things interesting. But along the way, I started noticing that the students really loved entrepreneurship classes. And there's great joy in teaching something that students really want to learn about. It's more fun, frankly, to teach electives than required courses sometimes because the people who are in your classroom really want to be there. And so I noticed that, and that was very appealing. And then simultaneously, it was the dot-com boom. And my brother decided to leave his traditional job at Intuit and start a company with a friend of his. My father retired from a career at IBM to become my brother's CTO and work for him. And I began to work with them on that founding uh, team in more of a stand, not a direct capacity, but I was working with them. I helped build their very first website. I taught myself HTML and I, you know, composited together their very first website. And it was a heck of a ride. Their company raised many tens of million dollars for venture capital firms, including Kleiner Perkins. They grew to 120. They then had to shrink quite precipitously down to about 30. (laughs) Somehow he kept it afloat and rebuilt it and ultimately sold it to Dun & Bradstreet. And my brother has subsequently had a career as a CEO of many different uh, venture-backed companies. He's emerged as a good sort of, I think, uh, guy seeking exits for firms that venture capitalists have invested in. But in the process of going through that ride with my family, where there were literally days in our car when we would say they had been approached for potential roadshows pre-IPO before the bust, and Ooh. so we went through that whole roller coaster of sort of watching him grow the company, shrink the company in the process, he fired my father. <laughs> and oh, uh wow. <laughs> so going through that entire ride as sort of a fly on the wall, but also the person who was doing at least initially much of their marketing messaging and the like in the very early days, it made me much more aware of entrepreneurship. So it was a simultaneity of me doing a doctoral program, seeing that this was the area that students really enjoyed to learn in, seeing that as a teacher you could be really creative as an entrepreneurship instructor. And then simultaneously being in the heart of a family where we sort of collectively, at least emotionally, uh, went through this entrepreneurial journey. And those things all sort of aggregated to make it the right thing for me to choose.
0: Yeah. And early on in this interview, you mentioned the creativity, obviously, of entrepreneurship and teaching entrepreneurship. I'm curious, like, what would you even say to people who say you can't teach entrepreneurship? Because I've heard that before from people and might be people who either didn't go to school or you know started massive companies, whatever it may be. But how do you approach or say, I mean, how do you approach even like teaching entrepreneurship?
1: Oh, well, I think there are two different questions. Let me try to yeah. take the question, which is just, you know, what do I say to people who say you can't teach entrepreneurship? I don't know that that many people say that to my face, but they probably say it plenty to the left of me, right of me if they're a few feet in front of me or behind my back. And I think I have a very, <laughs> over the years, I don't know if it's intentional. I sort of have a philosophical take, I think, on entrepreneurship education or education more generally. And, my answer to this is going to be a little long-winded. So prepare yourself.
0: <laughs> Ooh, strap in. Let's go. <laughs> yeah,
1: okay. So I think, first of all, it really depends on how you define entrepreneurship. So let me answer the question a little bit indirectly. There are some common themes that come up whenever entrepreneurship educators meet. And one of them relates to how we as educators define success as entrepreneurship educators. And I think it's the topic I probably first heard about, oh gosh, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. And... Um, One of the most common answers that I've heard over the years is we measure our success one founder at a time. And I think that's how a lot of people see entrepreneurship education. And it suggests that success is somehow measured as an absolute count of how many students become founders out of school or some sort of measure of how many out of the total number of students you taught become founders. And I have to say that I have never really agreed with that as the sole or even primary metric of success. Because... First of all, because I know that straight out of school, there's actually fairly small percentages on average across the entire country. People go straight into entrepreneurship as founders, though many founders become that later in life. But because I believe that entrepreneurship courses offer aspect, um, insight into aspects of um, businesses more generally, and that to define us that narrowly as focused solely on founders is sort of to fundamentally misunderstand what entrepreneurship education is or what it can be. So when I think about entrepreneurship, I think about newness. There's a thing, this guy named Schumpeter, he talked about the liability of newness and that being an entrepreneur, you have to overcome this liability of newness of not having legitimacy or credibility or reputation. But I think about it more broadly and I say, okay, I think about the new initiative in an established organization, whether that's a new product or a new service or a division. I think about a person who might take on a new job and maybe even at the micro level, a place where there's a need to implement new systems or new processes. I can think about in more conventional terms, a person becomes, say, a franchisor, which means there's a working playbook and there's a lot of built-in risk management, at least in theory, but the person is still putting in his or her own money and therefore is taking on risk. But I also think about the common, the more common entrepreneurs out there, the person who spends a lifetime dreaming of launching, oh, I don't know, a flower shop or an automotive repair shop or a student test prep service or a, a consultancy or whatever, and then... On top of all that, there's, of course, the thing that most MBA students often find really interesting, which is these high-flying unicorn wannabes with a lot of venture capital, um, which are such a small percentage of the total. And so when I think about it, I think, well, you know, to launch or be involved in anything new, and keep in mind that entrepreneurship isn't just the founders, it might be anybody involved in the founding process, is to have to persuade using data, have to uh, muster or manage resources beyond one's immediate control, at least in the short term or early term, how to understand the interdependencies that exist in organizations and in larger systems. And so, I'm sorry, I'm giving you such a long-winded answer. But my my point is that I think really huge opportunity, there's ample opportunity to teach people how to better understand newness and how to methodically think about what are likely to be the risks attached to newness and consider how those risks might be managed. And how to anticipate problems or at least try and how to identify and navigate stakeholder concerns and how to understand the interdependencies. And I think that's what entrepreneurship education really teaches. And so when a person says you can't teach entrepreneurship, I guess I have sort of two different reactions. And the first is I'm pretty sure you're defining it in a more narrow way than I am. And um, the second is I probably can't convince you otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say sort of as a final comment that um One of the most common questions I get from students on the job market, particularly when I've taught at schools where entrepreneurship is a major, is what do I tell the interviewer when I'm asked why entrepreneurship since you're not a founder? And that, I think, relates very much to the you can't teach entrepreneurship thing. What I tell them is the reason why I love to teach entrepreneurship. And I mean this with the utmost of respect for my colleagues in specialized fields, but Many business schools are structured to develop in their students' deep expertise in specific areas, perhaps finance, perhaps marketing, accounting, HR, what have you. And though not all classes teach within those silos, many do. And um, there are, of course, outside of... There are capstone projects, but outside of that, there aren't that many courses in which students are asked to consider all of the different functions at once and to take a step back and understand how those various pieces jigsaw together to create the complex system that is an organization. And so, in my experience, one's ability to be successful in an entry-level position might be really, really substantially enhanced by skill in a specific area. But to really climb the ranks effectively, it can be really helpful to understand how the entry fits into the whole. And right. to understand you know, that organizations, organizational systems are inherently uncertain and dynamic and interdependent and even messy. And so I think entrepreneurship is one of the few fields within a business school environment where if students understand it that way, they can take a step back and really get this complete and very complicated view of organizational life. And it helps to start at the beginning. It's simpler. <laughs> explore how organizations grow and become more complex. And so I believe you can teach a great deal about newness. And that's what I think is the heart of entrepreneurship and I think it enhances people's effectiveness and outcomes in life and in business. So that's sort of my very long winded answer. To it.
0: <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. And it is a level of, you know, learning how to think and how to approach these things. Cause as people progress, especially, you know, at USC, they're going to progress, you know, high up, you assume, right. And you have to have the understanding of, of this organization as you progress from your first job to maybe your second job, third job, whatever it may be, even if you don't necessarily found a company, it's still a valuable exercise and valuable skills to learn. And, You know, what I'm curious about, too, with teaching entrepreneurship, how did you teach it early on? What was your approach early on in your career versus now? How has it evolved?
1: I think that teaching, you know, one of the things they never train PhD students to do is to teach. And so it's really an on-the-job learning process. (laughs) So one way it's evolved is that I've hopefully gotten a little bit better over time. But you also just begin to learn that, you know, you're good at some stuff and not good at other stuff in the classroom. You try to play to your strengths, hopefully. So when I started, I probably did a lot more lecturing. And what I've discovered is I really dislike lecturing, that what I am probably strongest at is conversations. Yeah. And specifically playing the devil's advocate, where a student says X, and I say, what about Y? And they say, Y? And I say, well, that's fine. But what about Z? And and so case-based teaching was probably the first time I found a sweet spot teaching entrepreneurship. But as I said earlier, I've worked in industry in addition to being an academic and I really like things that allow people to learn how to take some of the more traditionally academic tools, uh, not just frameworks, but what the frameworks mean, and not just how do you do analysis, but how do you interpret it to make decisions and so, I like things that say, how do we take this more theoretical stuff and understand it in terms of how it enhances our decision-making, how it pushes forward actual action. And because I have this very specific focus at the intersection of, I think, thinking and doing... I became very, very enamored with very early on uh, experiential uh, learning and experiential teaching and trying to build activities that would be really resonant and relevant and powerful for students. And so that, I think, is sort of what I enjoy most recently in my career is trying to create these experiences, these practical applied experiences.
0: Yeah. And for me, coming from a non-academic background in that respect, I am wondering how you structure your classes just in terms of the process of you obviously go through a school year then you know you're going to have another class the next semester or next year and how do you structure that next class or just in general how you structure your classes?
1: It depends on the class to be honest. I mean I think I've been a bit of a utility player in my career so I can I've taught an awful lot of intro classes but I've also taught some specialized advanced classes and I would say it tends to be idiosyncratic to the class
0: Well, one of the ones was, I mean, one of the ones that was mentioned in an article was Gaming the System, I think was the name of the class. And I would love to talk about that one with with the food trucks. Did you know ahead of time, like, this is what you wanted to do? Like, let's get food trucks involved. Let's have this as an activity. How did you structure that class?
1: (laughs) So I have a hobby uh, (laughs) of my work life, and that is puzzles, Um, not games, but puzzles. And 10 years ago, I decided to launch a crossword puzzle tournament in California in Los Angeles when I first came here because I didn't have one. And I had been to the National Puzzle Championship, the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament. And I just thought it was an incredibly cool event. And and I moved to LA, I said, it's a shame that nothing like that exists here. So I decided to... My brother was actually with me at the time. He said, well, why don't you watch it? And I said, oh, okay. And I did. I did nothing that I teach, by the way. I didn't do any market research. <laughs> I just thought, well, I guess I'll find puzzles and then I'll see if people come. <laughs> you know, I guess. <laughs> And uh, and I was fortunate enough to be put in touch with, then at the time, the editor of the New York Times Crossword Puzzle, a a fellow named Will Schwartz, who said, I will give you puzzles that will be published in the ensuing week in the New York Times so people can gain access to these puzzles a week in advance and let's see if people come. And so I did it. And about 40 or 50 people came. I had no idea what I was doing. It's actually a very complicated event to run because you have to be grading puzzles at the same time as people are doing them. And so it requires a lot of manpower. (laughs) But while I was there, we realized that there, was a, uh, there were a number of people who actually are frequent California-based constructors for New York Times puzzles. And I told Will this, and he said, well, maybe next year we can do it so that nobody needs to know this. But in the New York Times, we'll have a week where everybody who publishes in that week is a California constructor. And that way, your tournament can have the constructors actually present. So we did that. And then the next year, I decided I was ready. And I brought in a person I call a Puzzle Wrangler. And then I started custom inviting in puzzle makers to custom create puzzles for the tournament, which, as it turns out, is about a four-month product development cycle because you can't have overlapping themes. There have to be different difficulties, different lengths. There's a lot of test solving and all of these sorts of things. And over time, I built this tournament for ten years now, where I've you know some of the best crossword puzzle makers in the country make me custom puzzles, and I work with a team. That I assemble each year of anywhere from 30 to 50 volunteers to do it all. And then we give the money to a charity or a a nonprofit organization in town. And it's one of the larger crossword puzzle tournaments in the nation. There's a few larger ones now on the East Coast. I like to think that I helped spawn a lot of them because many of the ideas we use are replicated there. But of course, that might be me taking credit for things that would have emerged anyway or. Independently, of what say, yeah, yeah, but short story, really long. The result is that I ended up becoming a part of a community of puzzle solvers and game makers and game players, and I began to really sit, feel that games and puzzles enacted in the classroom can be a really powerful learning experience, and that I wasn't convinced that anybody had yet cracked the nut of how to create a game centric experience that could be a sort of a one of a kind class. And I said I like creating experiences. Simultaneously, I had in my mind that wouldn't it be amazing if you had a class where students showed up and didn't even know what they were doing? And you said instead of we're going to talk about these random ideas you have to come up with and test over the course of a semester, you said this semester you're going to launch a business and you just tell them what business they're going to launch. And because it has to be something manageable and it has to be the same for every team, I started thinking about what would work in that forum. And it was a food truck. It was before all these television shows and things that existed around food trucks. And so that's standardizes the learning experience if everybody gets a food truck. And so for a few years, I've been sitting on this idea of food trucks. And then simultaneously, I was being asked to speak about building these large-scale experiences for classes. And I was testing out all sorts of weird things. And um, I decided to put them together. So I built a class, actually sort of modeled on a reality show format, where every single class was a game, a serious educational game, but where the game itself is a masked organizational situation where there's clear winners and clear losers based on clear rules. And then because I wanted students to take it seriously, I decided that the winners get points. Actually, there's an in-class currency. We actually have coins and things created for the class. And that you can then barter for partnerships and coalitions to try to win future games. And that ultimately, there's sort of a grade kicker if you win the class overall. So it's a series of serious games nested in a metagame. And within that, I decided I'm going to try to do this some version of the food truck thing. And so I partnered with an outside provider and negotiated an incredibly uh, helpful deal to bring uh, four food trucks on campus across two days, two on one day, two on the next day. So it was really only two trucks refitted for the second day. And the students were given this challenge where I just said, hey, you're going to launch food trucks. And there were various steps in the challenge and they had to come up with a name, come up with the menu. They were given various constraints around how big their budget could be. And then they had one day in which to actually run all aspects of the food truck and try to sell as much as possible, excluding the cooking, because we don't have the licensing and all those sorts of things. The partner company, the chefs and the licensing and the insurance and all of those sorts of things. And I did it once. I don't actually know if it's replicable. It would have to be really revised in order for it to be... You know, something that becomes replicable across multiple classes. But uh it did get a bit of attention. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I'm sure that those students, I suspect that those students, for better or worse, will always remember that experience. Because oh, they
0: yeah.
1: I mean, they treat everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And as a college class, it, that's amazing. Like, hey, that would be such a fun, uh, fun experience to do. And that makes me think, what other games or scenarios either did you have in mind or do you have in mind for coming up with next?
1: It's an interesting question. I will say that not everybody loved the experience. (laughs) So one of the things is I like surprising students and some of the students not like that surprise because they weren't really ready to do something real. And the minute it felt real, it actually created a tremendous amount of stress for them. And so one of the things I learned is I really need to sort of have, people need to know they're going into this experience where they're going to actually have to sell. Because you think, oh, you're in an entrepreneurship class, you're being given an opportunity to be an entrepreneur, but not everybody chooses the class for that reason. And so some students felt, oh, this is more than I want to take on. And so it was very interesting navigating that challenge. When I think about it, I, do, I think there's ways you could do pop-up shops. You could probably get a space on campus where there's a rotating retail space space. I could probably do some sort of uh, food truck variation in the future, uh, but perhaps not on campus. There are a lot of rules attached to being on a campus uh, that can actually, at times, constrain creativity. Not meant to suppress the learning experience, but it's just basic things. You know, getting a food truck on campus, you don't pay attention to this. There are specific times that vehicles can roll onto campus when, and they can roll off campus because, obviously, we have to be very, very careful about all the people walking around on campus. There's times of days when there's a lot of foot traffic and a lot of skateboard and scooter traffic and bike traffic. And these are things you don't think about until you actually build an exercise like this. Whereas if you're just parking a truck on the street, it's actually easier. Right. Yeah. And so there's just a lot of constraints within university systems and not just USC, I mean, any university. I mean, it's just actually what's amazing isn't that I hit constraints at USC. What's amazing is that USC figured out a way to work with me and say, this sounds like a really innovative and remarkable learning experience. And we're going to figure out a way to make this happen, which I think is a testament to what's really wonderful about the school. And one of the things I love most about the school, but I do think about what would we do? And, and it, it probably is something around pop-up shops or some variation on that theme. I also frequently have students come to, well, we know you've done this and I have so-and-so in my family who's launching a restaurant. Do the students want to take over, you know, a night in the restaurant or something like that? I sometimes get approached with those sorts of things now because people know the sorts of things I like to do. But I've done other experiences. I mean, several years ago for a high school class, I partnered with an outside school that had a huge industrial kitchen and we bust 70 high school students out to the industrial kitchen. Oh, wow. We them into two large groups and then put them into smaller teams. And they were given a list of... They have... Again, they're given various constraints, limited resources, and they were told they had to launch a catering company for a specific type of an event. And then they had to actually decide on a recipe using their resource constraints. And then they had to create it. Said, actually cook. <laughs> <laughs> College <laughs> students <laughs> cooking? Yeah, it was high school students. Actually. High school students, I yeah. <laughs> eight hours just going, please, nobody burn yourselves. Please, nobody cut <laughs> yourselves. Yeah. It's very, very, you know, you get, there's a lot of liability issues you got to take care of up front. And then while the one was cooking, the other were preparing their pitch for why what they'd made was a good example of a catering company and why they should be chosen to cater future businesses. And so this is all happening parallel and in real time. And then in the kitchen we introduced a wrinkle, which was that all of a sudden the client asks for a second recipe. <laughs> so they have to allocate their team. So I do things like that. I have put two full classes into the uh, tank diving pool with uh, cardboard boats to race, which is sort of a standard uh, Boy Scout or community activity that you can look up online to find good plans. But I, you know, I like to throw in wrinkles. So they have you know forty six hours to get all the resources. I'm not providing them anything, and yeah. <laughs> Do it themselves. Um, not necessarily, again, something I would want to replicate because I discovered, among other things, that in one instance, students had dumpster dived, which isn't good. Actually, don't put that in your <laughs> podcast because I don't want to get trouble. <laughs> I will say that our, our Department of Public Safety wasn't that thrilled because one of the groups, um, they discovered at two in the morning in the central fountain uh, on campus near where Traveler the Horse is trying to paddle their cardboard boat around to see if it would stay afloat or sink.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Uh, (laughs) Phone calls that you get, like we have a student team, they're in the fountain. They say, you're the person who told them to do this. But we did that. And again, it was, you know, they had to find their own resources. And then it was based on a Swedish warship called the Vasa that sank in around 1620. And the idea was that the leader of the project kept changing the instructions and the expectations. So I tweeted as the king of Sweden throughout of it. (laughs) changing the rules of what they had to do for me while they were doing it. And, you know, oh, now you need this. Now you need that. Oh, I changed my mind. You don't need this thing. And I actually had hidden points available to the to any team that had the boldness to tell me that I was asking too much of them. Because I wanted them to learn that sometimes you have to push back against authority. Oh uh, nobody, actually, nobody actually pushed back. So nobody got the extra points. So Everyone just Anyways, it. I do, weird, I do all sorts of weird things like that. And, and I guess the question is, what are they actually learning I'm not sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a great time though.
1: <laughs> I get asked to give talks on building experiences. And one of the things I say is that it's actually really easy to create experiences, but it's really, really difficult to create truly educational experiences. And what I try to do is really have a very clear sense of what I'm trying to teach. And so, you know, with the boat example, I'm really trying to teach about, you know, the need to be creative with resources, the need to make decisions and test things before you actually go into the event. So that's about iteration, responding to leadership, managing a client, managing a customer, those sorts of things. And so it's thematically around those sorts of issues. Or with the food truck, it was, I think, more holistic. It's more, how do you actually put together all of the pieces to test before you actually launch? How do you launch? And also, how do you really reflect on, if you had to do this a second day, how different would it look?
0: Yeah. And I'm wondering, too, getting the... You said some people don't necessarily have the class that... They don't want necessarily the same things out of the class as someone who wants to be an entrepreneur for sure, and they may not be as into it. How do you evaluate that feedback afterwards and then adjust, or how do you approach that?
1: I think one of the funny things as an educator is you can always say, well, if you learned you didn't like it, that's a useful lesson in and of itself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Put that in your back pocket.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's good to know that you, one of the things as entrepreneurship educators, we talk about the fact that entrepreneurship is inherently uncertain. And so the notion that that the experience plays out unexpectedly is actually something that's good because it sort of proves the point. In any educational degree, people are going to learn there's this equation or that framework and all of these sorts of basic things. But I think that the heart and soul of a really valuable educational experience deals with sometimes more philosophical or broader issues. And I honestly think that if a person walks out of a class knowing, wow, you know, I got thrown this incredibly crazy thing and I navigated it and really enjoyed it, And that's a person who's at the beginning of his or her career. I think that's really valuable to know about yourself in the same way that I think it's incredibly valuable to know this isn't the sort of scenario which makes me feel comfortable because people don't really know themselves until they're faced with those sorts of things. With the food truck example, there was a student who was excelling in the class and actually immediately wanted to launch, uh, drop the class. Really? Yeah. And I was really stunned by it at the time. And I had many conversations, not many, but a few conversations that week trying to really dig into why in a class where everything has been going well, would you suddenly walk away from the class on the basis of this one project? And the answer sort of came back that it related, first of all, to the anticipated amount of work that would be required to be successful. Because, of course, students have multiple classes, multiple competing obligations. And if in their mind they were going to do much less in a class and they find out all of a sudden it's a big deal, then they can feel that their schedule and their sense of priorities is thrown, which I think is very legitimate. But at the same time, I think there's a question of, well, why did you think it wasn't going to be that much? And what makes it worthwhile to you to really invest the time to do it? And, you know, you have a conversation about what constitutes stretching a student. Is an education about doing what's expected or is it about stretching into uncomfortable places? You know, I suggested that the student should do absolutely whatever the student wanted to do with respect to staying in the class. I don't take this stuff personally. Maybe there'd be value. Uh, just life value and having that experience and seeing how it went. And the student stuck it out. And I don't think the student enjoyed the experience, but I do know that the student valued the experience and felt that there was a lot of learning there, perhaps more about self than about business. And to me, that's a win. Maybe someday the student will see it that way. Um, And the student acknowledged to me at the end, the student was glad to have stayed in the class. It was a very eye-opening experience. But, you know different
0: people. Yeah. I mean, everyone has a different experience and then they have a different perspective or what the expectations of a class, you know, is every time. And obviously being in the MBA program now, I've, I have different expectations of different classes. And sometimes you do see that in the level of work it's going to be, or what you're really trying to get out of it. But ultimately it falls on the student for how they want to approach it, what they do want to get out of it. And you can you have a bad attitude about something, or have a certain expectation that may not be may not align with maybe what you want to do. But if you're open minded and kind of approach it the right way, you can get a lot more out of it. And then stepping away from the classroom a little bit, I'm just curious about what you're doing for research uh, now. What your research centers around?
1: Oh, but we address that in a second. But I want to go back to what you're talking about because you asked about how I evaluate that and how students evaluate it. And I would say can't evaluate it based on the success or failure of the business because there's so much luck involved. So for example, with the food trucks, one day it emerged that it was like 100 degrees, very, very hot, very unexpected. And one of the teams had a grilled cheese truck. So the lessons can be very unpredictable lessons. So you can't base it solely on profit in that sort of a situation. It's more on how do they reflect about the experience? So what do they learn? And so there's metrics around that and how do they feedback what they've learned? But I would also say that it's really important, as much as it hurts as a faculty member or anybody to put yourself out on a limb and say, criticize me, that one of the important things I happened to do in this class, and I didn't want to do it candidly, but I did it anyway, I didn't want to do it because I was afraid of what I'd hear, was I let the students really rip the class to shreds at the end. So I let them really evaluate to my face the outcomes from their own perspective. And so I think that's another way that you, you asked about how you evaluate across all of these different motivations and different aptitudes and different people. And I think part of it is letting them say exactly how they feel, which, you know, a lot of it's really positive and some of it's like, ooh, okay, (laughs) you know, it's really hard, it didn't go quite perfectly. And so I think being able to accept the good and the bad and see it all as constructive is an important thing. In terms of research, I haven't really recently been doing a ton of that, to be candid. These sorts of classes are what I've been doing research on. How do you bring in theory, those sorts of aspects. That's what I've been talking about on the circuit, I guess, the conference circuit, if there is one. My prior research has historically, or earlier in my career, my research focused uh, largely on social networks and entrepreneurship, uh, looking specifically at how aspiring and new founders build the social networks and cultivate the social networks with which they hope to secure the resources necessary to launch a venture successfully. And so I did a bunch of research on
0: that early in my career. How did you choose that as your topic of research early on? I'm just curious.
1: It's hard to believe if you ever sit down and speak to me, including now, that I'm actually a fairly quiet person outside of the classroom or outside of work, because at work, I'm unbelievably talkative and very, very verbal. But socially, I was raised in a home where I was taught something that I guess now, having been in business school environment for as long as I have, might seem so hopelessly naive that it doesn't even sound real. But I was raised to believe that the world is a meritocracy, that if you work hard, you do well. You don't ask others for what you can create yourself. I really bought it, hook, line, and sinker. Sinker, that sounded like singer when I said it. And so, you know, when I got various jobs and things, it was sort of purely on the strength of whatever sort of, I don't know, intellectual heft I brought to the conversation. And then over time, I watched how organizations really worked. And I realized there's so much about, you know, who you know that drives a lot of job placements and organizational success and these sorts of things. And this was something that I really didn't anticipate, didn't understand, and didn't know how to deal with. And so I think it was a little bit of physician heal thyself. I decided, since I don't really understand this whole schmoozing and networking thing, I'm going to try to study it for my doctoral thesis. And then I chose as a topic something that involved me finding 50 brand new founders who are just starting and getting them to log in what approximated real-time Every person they met as they met them, you know, were the process of doing that. I became a lot more confident in reaching out to people and talking to people and being in a position to build a network if it was something I wanted to do. I'll say I'm still pretty bad at it, to be honest. I like to think I'm not bad for lack of skill, but I'm actually bad for lack of time. I'm a single mother to an eight-year-old. And so, you know, being a faculty member while raising a child without any family in the area has, you know, takes up a lot of my time. But there's just something that, to me, is important to understand about social networks, which is, you know, what makes a successful social network versus an unsuccessful one. And I will say it's been affirming what I've learned, which is that the best social networkers are the people who build real relationships. And that, to me, makes it a little bit more palatable than this notion that somehow the schmooze gets you far.
0: And... You say you're not doing as much research now, more so focusing on, on the classes and everything with that then. I'm curious just then how you are just doing your own personal learning and research in your career now.
1: Well, I do read a lot of things that come out in various places, and I try to keep up in that way. My biggest source of learning about industry is actually my students. You know, students come with all sorts of different ideas, and they do a ton of research, and I learn through all the work that they do. And then I also regularly attend a series of conferences. And within that, hear a tremendous amount about not just entrepreneurship education at a high level, but the sorts of content and the way it's being delivered. So I go to at least two to three conferences a year to try to advance my knowledge in that regard. I'm actively engaged in conversation with a subset of professors nationwide, where we regularly post comments and talk to each other about various aspects. And also I think anytime I am teaching a new course, I go in and dig into a lot of the recent literature and readings to try to see what I can do that can keep a class current. And so even with classes that I teach year in and year out, I probably rotate out as much as 25 to 40% of the reading material in, in any given year to try to make it more current. It's a little bit risky. <laughs> <'cause> you, never, <laughs> you know, you can learn how to teach a class really well and then you never change anything. And, you know, each time it's going to be a slam dunk. But I don't know. It feels like I'm not walking my own entrepreneurial talk. So. Uh, so I try to take some active risks with the content that I deliver in my class for good and for bad. A few years ago, I helped build the first um, online entrepreneurship offering for the online MBA course. And in, in that case, because I'm such an experience-driven person, I don't actually think it was a perfect fit. But uh, in the process of having to craft lectures for the first time in you know, so many years, after deciding I didn't like lectures, I went and did a bunch of research and you know, refreshed a lot of my materials. So those sorts of things keep you fresh.
0: Yeah. Even saying that of an online education type of thing, I mean, how did you then approach that? Because that's, I mean, essentially just go grind. A lot of it is sharing interviews and stuff, but also insights into entrepreneurship. And some will be videos, some are articles, but how did you approach that?
1: I did a lot of reading. I actually, there are these things called MOOCs, massively open online courses, which are free educational online offerings. And I actually took like six MOOC courses in the lead up to that to see what it's like to be a student on multiple platforms. I did, I think I did Udacity, edX, Coursera the time, there was one called NovoEd. I don't know if that one's still around. I haven't checked recently. I did everything from an entrepreneurship course because I was curious to see how somebody <laughs> else taught it. But I didn't last that long in that class. And uh, I did a negotiation course. I remember that one. I sort of had to watch 10 hours of videos and I just walked away and would you know do laundry and I'd come back to see if the video was over. I learned how students probably interact with videos that way. And you know, and I did a, the, the most fun one was one of the Smithsonian that had to do with superheroes. where you had to create a superhero and an all three that like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but it's kind of fun. There was like this little widget where I got to design my own superhero. I don't even remember what it was anymore. I just remember that the, the superhero was extraordinarily nerdy. because that seemed true to self? Yeah. And so that, I think that was sort of coming up. But when it comes to something like that, it's the method of teaching that's so new and so different. If you're not doing lectures. And so it was very challenging. I think it was just, you know, on the job that I learned a lot as well. And the way we finally delivered an experience was by partnering with an outside company. We partnered, I had a co-teacher, Peter Carden, out of our business communications department. And uh, we partnered with um, IBM and their uh, Watson initiative for artificial intelligence knowledge. And we had students develop ideas around artificial intelligence and cognitive computing. And that was fun because we could build in a competition and we could fly the winners up to San Francisco to meet with IBM and that
0: sort of... Sounds like an interesting experience. And yeah, I'm definitely interested in that teaching online type of thing. I've taken a few courses myself also to kind of figure out how do they teach and also to learn things in that perspective. And someone I had in the podcast, actually, Shiv Gaglani from Osmosis, he founded that company and they're Teaching like online medical information, and they've grown a lot. And it's all through videos, and it is it is curious. There's just different ways of learning, you know, outside of a classroom. And we'll see where that goes as it progresses. Like you mentioned, that's the open online courses. You know, there's going to be more of them as we continue on, but we'll see how that progresses. And one thing that I definitely wanted to ask you it, because this show is focused more on helping people launch and grow a business, so it's a lot of you know early. People have an idea, or they're just curious about entrepreneurship. What would you tell someone who you know wants to start a business? What are some of the first things they should kind of think about?
1: Oh, I, I suspect that you get the similar answers on this all the time. <laughs> it's varied.
0: Probably. You'd be surprised, actually, but somewhat similar.
1: I'm going to go back to entrepreneurship education again. It's going to make me sound so theory-driven, but entrepreneurship education started well before the 1970s. But I don't know if you know this as a USC student, but the first. MBA Entrepreneurship Program and the First Undergraduate Entrepreneurship Program were actually at USC.
0: I thought um, someone mentioned that, yeah.
1: 1971, I think, was when the MBA Entrepreneurship Program began. and A little bit later, around 76, is when the undergrad one. There were courses before that, but like not a full yeah. program. Anyway, since that time, there's always been a lot of attention given to the customer. Will someone actually buy what you want to make? The focus is not new, but it's become a lot more prominent as a topic and perhaps even feels new because of this mass adoption lately of lean startup. the Lean Startup vocabulary, which talks about customer discovery. And so I think the first thing they should think about is the customer. I don't know if you know this, but the first person I believe to ever use entrepreneurship in a doctoral thesis was a fellow named Jeffrey Timmons when he was a student at Harvard Business School. And he subsequently built the Babson program. Babson has an extraordinarily good entrepreneurship program on the East Coast. And he would do these training programs, not solely for students, but for new educators. And one of the things he said that really has stuck with me since the early in my career was he would say, well, what's the difference between an idea and an opportunity? And uh, he would say an opportunity is an idea for which there's demand. And it's a line I use over and over and over again in my classes. If anybody is ever going to be a student of mine down the road, it will be a good question. <laughs>
0: for hey, me.
1: I say, what is the difference between an idea and an opportunity? And the answer is an opportunity is an idea for which there's demand and you know, if there isn't demand, there isn't a business. So the key as early as possible is you have to prove demand. And that of course goes again back to the customer. So I say always remember demand, 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 demand. It's really easy to prove that a problem exists. Uh, it's really easy to prove that demand for solutions exists. It's really hard to prove that demand for your solution exists. So that's really the wrinkle that you need to get over really early. And then I think a second thing, it's another line, you know, whenever I see other instructors do something that I think really works, I steal it. <laughs> <laughs> Credit where credit is due, but why reinvent the wheel? And so, on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, uh, he had another line that I've also repeated over and over again over the years. And he would say to the people in the room, he'd say, "Tell me what is happiness? How do you define happiness?" And you know, people give, of course, everything from philosophical to funny answers. Oh, happiness is a warm puppy, or you know, <laughs> like you know, happiness is following your passion. Happiness is freedom. You know, people give all these sorts of answers, and then he would say. You know, for the purpose of this conversation, never forget this: happiness is positive cash flow. And, and then he would say, to them, "I want to hear everybody. What is happiness?" And everybody was like, "I'm yeah, positive cash flow." No, let me hear it. What is happiness? Positive the flow. And, and I, I've done that in my classes and, you know, I'll have students, you know, five, 10 years later and they're like, we remember that happiness is positive cash flow. And, you know, I sort of feel like if they remember one thing from my class, 10 years later, it's a win. I don't want to undersell education, but sometimes it feels that way. And so I think it's remembering that there needs to be demand, but also that there needs to be positive cash flow. That those are the two things that I would have people really think about. And by the way, that's true also of social enterprises, because if you don't have enough money to pay for your social enterprise to stay afloat, uh, then you can't do the good that you want to do. You can't fulfill your mission. So it doesn't mean profit in the conventional sense necessarily, but you definitely have, enough, have to have enough cash coming in that you can support your business. So I think um, those are two. It, those are more sort of, I think, philosophical first things to think about. Uh, you know, in more practical terms, I try to tell my students to show rather than tell, figure out a way to let people see what you're talking about rather than just using your words to convey it. You know, whether it's a mock-up or something, but those two things I think are really important.
0: Yeah. And I think this is a great place to stop because I mean, so many different insights and stories and I really enjoyed this chat today and want to thank you for making the time as you are busy as well uh, for coming on the show, Elisa.
1: Sure, it's been fun. I'm, you know, it's daunting to allow yourself to be interviewed a little bit. I always worry that I'm going to sound like I don't know what I'm talking <laughs> about. So, two things: one of which is to thank you, and the second of which is to say, please edit anything out that sounds stupid. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I think entrepreneurship is fun. You know, to me, the opportunity to create and to be true to who you are is what it's all about. Whether it's a business or it's a crossword puzzle tournament. <laughs> or it's a single product in a company where we've already been, or if, even if you're just trying to create a new process for your department, you have to persuade, you have to compel, you have to convince people to change their behavior. And it's challenging, and I think it's exciting, and I love to teach it. I love to see students take it wherever they want to take it.
0: Yeah, and it's clear that it, it's working based on accolades and everything else. But thank you so much again for coming on the show, Lisa
1: no problem. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash just go grind. And please, please leave a rating review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a great day.